uh, as already mentioned from Wes, and uh, we're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of John to celebrate and remember the Advent season. And uh, he gave us a, a synopsis, a brief synopsis of, of the Advent season. Let me, I want to go a, a step deeper in our teaching this morning, talk a little bit about the history of Advent. And uh, what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks is four themes uh, that we celebrate in, in the Advent season, hope, love, joy, and peace. And if you're wondering, uh, what is Advent? Advent simply means coming or the arrival, the, the coming of something, the arrival. I, many of you, if you're kiddos in the room today, you're, you're waiting for the advent of Christmas, the coming of Christmas. You're eagerly anticipating, digging into those presents. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, we used to do the, the red and green chains of construction paper, and every day you would tear one of those off, and it, it would be like every day is a day closer. And it's just creating that anticipation. And, and Advent is, is ultimately, we're waiting and we're anticipating the second coming of Christ. And so Advent originally began around 4th and 5th century, and it kind of became popularized in, in that time. And uh, this was, it, it tied this season to the coming of Christ. And so if you know anything about uh, the Old Testament going into the New Testament, there's, there's a 400-year period where, where God was silent. God didn't speak through his prophets, and, and people were eagerly awaiting this Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. They were eagerly awaiting, who would come, Savior of the world, who would come? And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and there's this hope, and there's this anticipation, and they're longing for the Messiah to come. And in the same way, we today, we are longing, and we're waiting for the Messiah to come. It tells us in John chapter 14, verse 3, it says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so we're eagerly and anticipating, in the same way the early Christians were, were waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. We are waiting. We're longing. We're hoping. We're believing. Advent symbolizes the present situation of the church in these last days, as God's people wait for the return of Christ in glory to consummate his eternal kingdom, the church in a similar situation to Israel at the Old Testament, uh, we see in exile, right? They're waiting and hoping in prayerful expectation for the coming of the Messiah. Israel looked back to God's past gracious actions on their behalf and leading them out of Egypt, leading them out of uh, through the Exodus. And they called for God once again to act on their behalf. And we look back, we look back to the promises of the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus. And that gives us promise and hope for the second coming of Jesus. And so we are hoping and putting our hope in the future. Now, um, this eager anticipation that we all have in longing for Jesus can be summed up in one word, hope, right? All that we have been hoping for and anticipating is revealed to us in Jesus. And it doesn't take, uh, take much. It doesn't take, a, a, you know, but just a quick glance. We look at the condition of our world. 
we look at the brokenness, we look at, uh, at the news that is presented that we're bombarded with each and every week, and, and many of us can, can come to the conclusion there is something not right with our world. Our world is, is experiencing uh, a deep lostness, darkness, brokenness. And for many of us, it's, it's easy to lose hope in this season. We're bombarded every day in, in our world with brokenness. We're bombarded each day with our own inadequacies. We're bombarded each day with our own failures, our own brokenness. And this may leave many of us with, without hope and questioning, will there be a happy ending to my story? And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're walking in this room this morning and you're saying, I don't believe there's going to be a happy ending to my story. And what happens at Christmas, what happens during this Advent season, it's, it's an opportunity to see and, and remember hope is breaking into our story. And it's important to know where we are in the story, right? God comes in, in a moment of hopelessness and he speaks hope and he speaks promises and, and he speaks over, we see in the, in the very beginning of Luke here, we're going to see these promises that were given to Mary. And they're not just promises for Mary, but they're promises that have been given to you and I. And we need people to speak those promises over us. I need people to speak these promises over me. And so here in a moment, I'm going to remind us of these promises given to Mary that give us hope and anticipation for the second coming of Jesus. But it's important to understand, first of all, the whole drama of Scripture. Maybe you're here today and you're looking at this book and you're going, it's 66 books and I have no idea what that book is talking about. And that's okay. Let me, let me give you, there's one way to describe this that is seen through four major plots. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you want to know the story of the Bible, it's given in these four kind of plot lines. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In the first scene... God creates. We see in Genesis 1-1, God creates. Everything he created was good. Life was lived close to God. There was, they, they were full of life. Adam and Eve were full of life. They were full of protection. They were full of provision. God gave them all things. And then we see the fall. It happens early on in the context of Scripture. We see sin enter into the world. We see brokenness enter into our world. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others has been broken, and we fail to fully reflect the image of God to our world. And we see all throughout the Old Testament, this is God, God chooses Israel to be his image bearers, like God chooses them to reflect what God is like. And we see time and time again as we walk through the Old Testament, the Israelites fail to do so. But ultimately, all of this failing would lead up to a point of a rescue, of a redemption, where, where there would be a time that would be made just right for Jesus to enter into the brokenness. See, God would not leave us there. He would come, he would redeem, he would rescue his people, and he does this through the person of Jesus Christ, who lives the life we could never live, dies the death we would never want to face, and calls us to receive his righteousness and forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, we are justified, sanctified, and will one day be glorified. 
And then ultimately, the story of God ends with complete and full restoration, where everything returns to perfect harmony, a life lived close with God, full of life, full of protection, full of provision. And here's where we are in the story, folks. We are living currently in a time between redemption and restoration. Jesus has come. Jesus has broken into our world. Jesus has come and he has spoken promises over us, but it hasn't yet fully been realized. We live in this already, but not yet. We're experiencing glimpses of the kingdom of God, but not a full reality, not a full picture, not a full consummation of what it means to be fully restored as we read about in Revelation. But a time is coming and we can put our hope in it. We can trust in it because God's promises and God's word is true. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20 Here we read, and if you've been walking through us in the the Gospel of John, you'll love this because here we see once again uh, Wes's 10-point sermon that said they don't get it, they don't get it. That's all. We don't get it. None of us get it. And here's what it says. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, okay? So Pharisees, Jesus, they're in conversation here. When is the kingdom of God going to come? He answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, if you read that passage, you're like, what in the world does that mean? And this is the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom is that it's here, but it's not here. It's present, but not fully present. We're experiencing a foretaste of it, but it isn't like the full understanding. We're we're not going to be able to say like, oh, that's it. Here it is. But we're going to begin to see glimpses. We're going to begin to see a vision, a picture of the kingdom of God breaking in. It's not going to be observed the way other things are observed, but it is here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so there's a sense of where we're children of God. But we're going to have a deeper understanding, a deeper realization of what it means to be children of God when he comes. And so it's, a, it's an experience. We're experiencing the kingdom. We're in, in between this place of redemption and restoration. We, we see this this initial picture we see in Romans 8.32. It's kind of like a, a down payment. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not give him, give us graciously all things? And so like we've been deposited, he's given us Jesus, but he's going to fully restore all things that are broken. The kingdom has come. It's yet to come. It's, it's a coming kingdom. We're experiencing this. You experience this in the seasons, right? Like we live in Utah. And as, as soon as like we're, we're living uh, in a time for some of you who move from out of state, you're like, when is it going to be sunny again? Right? Like I want to see the sun. I want experiences. And then like we're going to break in and there's going to be these days in the spring where we're going to see glimpses like summer is coming. Right? Anybody get excited for like when summer's coming? How many of you... Like, you're, you're going, bring on summer. All right, there you are. Those are my people. I love you people, right? And there's some of you that are like, 
bring the dreary days. We love the dreary days. That's, yep, I see you. Well, there, there's a sense of going like, summer isn't fully here, but we're beginning to experience some of the realities. We're beginning to see the sunshine, and we're beginning to see flowers come, and, and they're, they're bearing fruit, and we're beginning to see glimpses. And that's the period of time where we are. This is, this is helpful for us because it's important for us to see where we are in the story of God. We are in the midst of God restoring all things. But there is a lot of pain between here and now, here and then. There's, there's a lot of pain between redemption and restoration. There's still a lot of brokenness that we experience between redemption and full restoration. There's a lot of suffering between here and there. But what you see now isn't the end of the story. What you're experiencing now isn't the end of the story. Right? How many of you are going home this afternoon and you're kicking on Hallmark movies? Right? You shake your head. I see some of you. And I see some of you guys. Like, I guarantee if a Hallmark movie was on, you would get caught up in it. All right, I'll admit it. I've watched a few Hallmark movies. And here's why. It's, a sto- it's the story of Scripture over and over and again. No Hallmark movies end with destruction. All Hallmark movies end in restoration. Like they, they, they couldn't come up with their own plot line. So they're like, let's take the plot line of Scripture and let's just play that over and over and over again on repeat. Like, it doesn't matter. Everything's perfect. They're living in this glamorous city where life is, and then brokenness enters in, whether it be relationship, financially, we got to close the family business, whatever happens, brokenness enters in, but then there's a rescue, like there's a redeemer. Someone comes and redeems, and usually it's like a really cute guy, all right? And he breaks in on the scene, or Christmas is saved, and then everything is restored to all of its you know, right ways. And we see this play out over and over and over again in every Hallmark movie. And the reason why you're willing to maybe not admit, like, hey, it, it's like you get caught up. That's the gospel story. The gospel story playing out over and over and over again. They are the most hopeful movies. I, uh, I recently came across an essay by J.R. Tolkien uh, talking about, uh, it's an essay on fairy stories, okay? And he gave this at St. Andrew's College in late 1930s. And it was, you can go and read this essay. It's like 40 pages by J.R. Tolkien uh, on an essay on fairy stories. And what he's ultimately saying is, is that every great story is pulled from the storyline of Scripture. And, and ultimately, I, I want to read this. It's a, it's a long quote, and follow along with me. But uh, I want you to see uh, what he calls a eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe is a, a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. Okay. And then we're going to go and we're going to look at this eucatastrophe from Luke chapter 1, okay? So this is kind of setting the stage. He says, uh, I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction, it has long been my feeling, a joyous feeling, that God 
redeemed the corrupt making creatures men in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story, a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has entered into history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. That's key. Your story, church, your story begins and ends in joy. Whatever you're walking through and facing today is not the end of your story. Your story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true. I love that. We read this story and we're like, I want that to be true. I want that to be true. I want to know that there is a redeemer. I want to know that there is someone who is going to restore all of the brokenness that we're experiencing. There's no one. I I have yet to meet someone who doesn't want all things restored. All things the way they should be. And none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For the art of it is supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. Another, another quote. It is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, Near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality in such stories, when the sudden turn comes, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story and lets a gleam come through. This is what we see. And I love that J.R. Tolkien writes about this. And, and obviously, you know, he would go on to be one of the, the best storytellers of all times. And, and we see that he's adopted this, that he sees that originally displayed through the context of Scripture. We see the story, that the story ends. It begins and ends with joy. We see that when this story, when this great eucatastrophe enters in and we see the story beginning to turn, it brings a gleam of hope and joy. And that's my hope. And that's my heart for you. Wherever you are in this story, that you know that it will end in joy. That's the great good news of this. And so, Let's jump into Luke 1. You're like, man, that was a long introduction. It was. We're going to go fast from here on out. Luke 1 is one of the great eucatastrophes of Scripture. It is the turning point of Scripture where redemption is stepping in. These promises that were spoken to Mary, they're promises for us today. 
Tim Keller says this about Luke 1, 26 through 38. He says, here is the first person to ever hear the actual Christian message that Jesus, the Son of God, was going to descend to earth. He was going to be born of a human being and he was going to take up a kingdom of the Father and he was going to make everything in the world right. This is the very moment that he steps in and does that, right? So here we go. First statement that he gave to Mary. Okay, and you gotta, you gotta step back and think about her context, all right? She's betrothed to Joseph. She's, she's uh, committed to marry Joseph. And she's confronted by an angel telling her that she's going to conceive of a child and give birth. Now, this is going to be frightening, okay? If you, you wanna talk about a hopeless situation, that seems initially, I, we can get caught up in the Christmas story like, oh, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. Like, it's like, this has gotta be the most scary thing that she's ever experienced or walked through in her life. The ridicule that she's going to face, uh, the, the, the sense of what she would experience in the context of community. Like, would people believe this story? And, and so she's in a moment, she's caught up in this moment, and I love what the angel Gabriel comes and shares with her. Let's read in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her. And here's what the angel said. This is the, the first introduction. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, that's a great start. Okay? Like, if, if you're going to have this conversation and say, like, hey, you're going to conceive of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have a child. And it's going to be the Savior of the world. We might want to preface that with a little bit of like comfort. And, and this is what the angel Gabriel does. The angel Gabriel comes on the scene and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And this is much more than a greeting. This isn't him just saying, Hey, hope, good to see you. Hope you're doing well. Um, God's got a plan for your life. Right? No, this, is, this, is, this carries way more meaning than, than maybe we catch for this language is often used in the Old Testament uh, where, where a person is chosen by God for a special purpose in salvation history. So this is a special greeting that he gives. And, and ultimately, there's something in the Greek here because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't just say like, greetings, O favored one. It literally is, let this news that I'm about to tell you cause great joy and praise in your life. And what is it that he says will cause great joy and praise in his life? That God is with you. God is with you. He's with you. And God has been absent for 400 years. God hasn't spoken. God, in, in some ways, there's been this silence. There's been this loneliness. There's been this experience of going, you know, for all these generations... You know, we've heard of a coming Messiah, but he's not come. And then all of a sudden breaks in this moment, a gleam of hope. And, and we see in this moment that he comes and says in this very first phrase, and I believe it's a phrase and it's a promise not only to Mary, but it's a phrase and a promise for us today. God is with you. God is with you. And I, I get that that's simple. And I don't, I don't the, the Christmas message is, is not one of this great complexity, what Jesus does for us is very complex. What Jesus does for us in, in redeeming us, I mean, he goes to the depths. 
But the gospel message is simple. And, and he comes and he's with us. God hasn't called you to live this life alone, church. And I think one of the many areas where we can easily feel discouraged or hopeless is in a sense of feeling alone. I can't tell you how often I, I hear stories and I, I hear comments or I hear testimonies of just people fear, feeling and experiencing loneliness. And I pray in the same way that this was meant to be an encouragement to Mary that you would hear and you would believe this morning, God is with you. He has not left you alone. Mary is being asked to, to bear a child as a virgin without being married. She will become an object of much doubt and ridicule. But it was the promise of God being with you and with her that would sustain her. Do you believe God is with you? I often reflect on the passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 through 17. Like, I, I, I cling to this passage. I want this passage to be true. I want to believe this passage. It says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. In your experience, in your journey of loneliness, do you believe, do you see, do you experience the Lord standing by you? Where do you need the hope of this gospel message, the Lord is with you this morning? What are you facing this week? What are you walking into this week that you simply need to hear God is with you? What are you walking into tomorrow morning and we're just pleading and begging, with God, be with me. Be with me. He is. What have you faced this past week that, that you've experienced that you're just needing to know that God's presence is near? What are you, where are you experiencing in your life that you feel like you're the only provider and protector of your life and, and you need to know that God is with you? Advent is a season a particular season, to stop and pause and to remember God is with you. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's with us. Um, John chapter 14, verse 25. Maybe if you're here, you're like, I, I, he's not with me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's given us the Holy Spirit to be with us. To be with us. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you. He's in you. He's with you. What good news is that? But it doesn't stop there. It's not that just God is with us, but God is for us. I, I love this verse 29 because uh, I think all of us would respond similarly. 
right? Like he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. We're like, where's he been? And he shows up. And then verse 29 says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Like you're a little bit taken back by this greeting. What is going on here? What is happening? And he tells her in verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God is for you. He comes and says, hey, the Lord is with you, but you've also found favor with God. God is for you. What what he's saying is you have found favored with God. Mary is highly favored. She received God's grace on the basis of his sovereign action, not because of anything she did or accomplished. She, She just totally, like he just bestowed God's grace not because of her merit, not because she's done anything, simply because she was the chosen vessel of God's demonstration of grace. He gives her grace. He gives her grace. This word favored here is used in the New Testament over and over and over again as a free bestowal of grace. And so what what the Lord tells her is, I'm about to give you a free gift of grace. I'm about to give you this gift of grace. Do you believe that? And, and he gives us this because it, it doesn't allow any of us to boast. It doesn't allow any of us to say like, look at what I got. Look, look what I earned. And that's what's beautiful about this picture is that grace eliminates all boasting. He says, you're favored. You are loved. You're chosen. I'm giving you this gift of grace. And I would say, and I would encourage us this morning to allow this grace to take away all sense of hopelessness. Here's why. Listen, church, you're no longer, when you receive the gift of grace, when you receive approval from the Father that is not given based on anything you have to do or earn, you're no longer searching for approval in life. You're no longer searching. I can see a thread through my life, through my story of constantly needing to be approved, constantly needing to prove myself, constantly showing that I'm equipped, constantly showing that I'm competent, constantly showing that I am able. And, and ultimately, what I read in this story, the, the hope to me, God calls me favored. He says, you don't have to work for it. It's a free gift of grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to show your competency or your ability or your talents or your gifts. You don't have to work for this. I am completely giving you this free bestowal of grace. You don't have to live on the treadmill of approval any longer. It's exhausting. And he says, you can rest because you've been favored. Do you feel that? Do you experience that? Where do you need to hear this morning that God's not just with you, but he's for you this morning? He's not against you. He loves you. He has pursued you. Romans 8, chapter 31, because you may, like me, you're going, oh, that's great for Mary, but what about me? Well, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake we are being killed Killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is for you. He's for you. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work it. It's a free gift of grace. Let that grace take away any sense of hopelessness. And lastly, I want you to see that God is rescuing us. God is rescuing us. We see in in verse 31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What about this guy, Jesus? Well, he's going to be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And we see this picture of this future reality. But it wasn't just a future reality. It was a reality that could be experienced right then and there. We see that through this man, Jesus, he would be the Messiah. The Messiah that would come to rescue God saves, God rescues, and she's being reminded that God saves, that God rescues, and God can do the impossible. I think about this story, and and maybe you're here, and you're, you're doubting, well, I don't know if he could rescue me. Well, the story is wrapped up in a virgin conceiving of a child. It's amazing. What's, what's truly impossible for God? There's nothing he cannot do. John Piper uh, taught through these names of Jesus and, uh, and gave, there, there's five descriptors here uh, in, in the life of Jesus. And it, it starts off, his name will be Jesus. And he says, his name will be Jesus. In Hebrew, Joshua, which means savior or deliverer. Gabriel loves to highlight grace. Before he tells Mary of Christ's greatness and dignity dignity and power, he tells her how he's going to use this grace and dignity and power. He's going to use it as a savior. So don't be afraid, Mary. Your child will be your savior. He'll be Jesus. He will be great. I love this. Jesus is great. He is very great. Is there anything great in the world that excites you, that you'll go out of your way to see or hear. Christ is that person. Christ is great. And he is 10 million times greater in every respect except sin. If you took all the greatest thinkers of every country, of every century of the world, and you put them in a room with Jesus, they would shut their mouths and listen to the greatness of his wisdom. 
If you take all the greatest generals that would listen to his strategy, if you take all the greatest musicians, they would listen to his music theory and his performance on every instrument. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do a thousand times better than the person you admire most in any, ever, uh, in any area of human endeavor under the sun. Words fell to fill the greatness of Jesus. So Gabriel leaves it very simple and just says, he'll be great. He'll be called son of the most high. Jesus is uniquely God's son, the divine word and image of God, begotten from all eternity. He will sit on David's throne. Gabriel says the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, since Mary's son will be the savior of his people, will be superior in greatness, and will be called son of the most high. It is fitting and inevitable that he will be king. He will fulfill all the prophecies that a son of David will rule over Israel. But not only over Israel, Isaiah 11.10 says, In that date the root of Jesse shall stand as an ensign to the peoples. He shall the nation seek and his dwelling shall be glorious. Mary's son will someday rule the entire world. And then it says his kingdom will never end. Gabriel says he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It says, do you see what this promise means? It means that Jesus is alive and ruling over his people at 11 a.m. Sunday, December 4th, 2022. He's ruling. The question is, do you believe that? Jesus, Savior, Son of God, King of the world, is governing just as realistically today as any former president or leader of this country or world. He's redeeming it. And he's restoring it. Our hope, our joy is wrapped up in this great you catastrophe where hope breaks in and there's a sudden turn of events where Jesus breaks in as our Savior, as our Redeemer. And what's interesting is we look at her response where initially Mary is kind of taken back by the greeting and she hears this angel Gabriel and ultimately comes to verse 38 and says, Mary, and Mary said, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. I believe when we find out and we discover what truly gives us hope in life, we will give our life for it. When we truly discover what brings true and lasting hope, significant hope, you will give your life for it. We all work for the thing that we believe will bring us hope. So if you want to Follow that thread. If you want to follow that to the end to go, well, what are you working for? What is it? Where, where, is the, where does that lead to, the, the path of hope? Where does it lead me to? The result of Mary, we see in this, that she would give her life to the Lord. Her hope lies with Jesus. And that's what we're hoping for you this Advent season is that today you would see whatever you're facing, whatever you're walking, whatever you're experiencing right now today is not the end of your story. 
that we have hope in Jesus Christ, that the story begins and ends with joy, and that one day he's going to restore all things. Advent is a season to look up and remember that. In Luke chapter 21, verse 28, it says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And that's what I hope for us today, that we would be able to look up, that we would be able to see our redemption is drawing near. I'll end with this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says, Advent creates people, new, new people. We too are supposed to become new people in Advent. Look up, you whose gaze, whose gaze is fixed on the earth. We are spellbound by the little events and changes on the face of the earth. Look up to these words, you who have turned away from heaven disappointed. Look up, you whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are heavy and are crying over the fact that the earth has graciously torn us away. Look up, you who burdened with guilt cannot lift up your eyes. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Something different from what you see daily will happen. Just be aware, be watchful, wait just another short moment, wait and something quite new will break over you. God will come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this you catastrophe, this sudden turn of events where you break into a world, a world experiencing darkness a world experiencing hopelessness, and you break in and say, the Messiah is here. He's coming. And he's not only here, he's with us. And he's not only here, but he's for us. And he's not only for us, but he's coming to rescue us. Lord, thank you that no matter where we are today, we know that that will not always be where we'll always be. Lord, that you're redeeming and restoring all things. And that, and we're part of that. We're a part of you restoring all of creation. So Lord, I I just pray that today we would not see ourselves as stuck. Give us hope in the midst of great pain and suffering. Give us hope that sees a new kingdom that is coming. Give us hope to see this picture of a future reality that you're bringing a kingdom. And although we are just getting glimpses of it today, one day we will see it face to face full realization, full experience. We long for that day. Jesus, come again. We ask, we beg of you, Lord, come. Restore our world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.